Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Human Rights, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrew Jaya. Today I'll be speaking with historian Paul Friedland, an affiliate of the Minda de Gunsberg Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He's written a book called Seeing Justice Done, The Age of Spectacular Capital Punishment in France. Friedland's book is a rich and expansive examination of the history of public executions in France. He demonstrates that modern preoccupations with exemplary deterrence as a justification for punishment have led to distortions in how we understand public executions as they happened in the past. He begins his study in the medieval period, where he observes that public executions function mainly as rituals for repairing damage to the social fabric. He then follows the thread over half a millennium, tracing many evolutions in attitudes and practice, but never finding deterrence theory at work, quite as some commentators have. Hi, this is Andrew Jaya with uh, New Books in Human Rights, and I'm talking with Paul Friedland about his new book, Seeing Justice Done, The Age of Spectacular Capital Punishment in France. Um, and before I before we get started, uh, I thought it'd be nice if, uh, Paul, you could just uh, tell the listeners a few things about yourself, um, just to introduce who you are and where you've studied and, and how you came to be interested in, in your current project. Sure. Um, I am a historian of early modern France, and I basically started as a French Revolutionary historian. My first book uh, was on politics and theater in the French Revolution. And I guess I sort of came of age as a grad student uh, during the heyday of post-structuralism, and I was uh, at Berkeley and sort of reading Foucault and uh, chatting with people all the time about the newest theories in France and... uh, and eventually sort of moved away from sort of explicitly delving into theory into much more sort of rigorously archival um, uh, historical studies, uh, reading of texts really closely. Not that that's opposed to post-structuralism, but I became less interested in the theories themselves and more interested in um, using those theories as a way of reading history. And um, so as I said, I got my uh, PhD at Berkeley, and had a quick job at Loyola University of Chicago, and then uh, moved out to Maine, uh, where I became uh, uh, assistant professor of history at Bowdoin College, and then uh, eventually associate professor. And then I did something that um, people don't normally do. I stopped being a regular faculty and devoted myself full-time to research and writing and um, strung together a bunch of different fellowships. So I, uh, I left my job as a regular academic and strung together a bunch of different fellowships. And uh, most recently, um, let's see, I had uh, just a couple different ones from the um, NEH and from the ACLS. And uh, just last year, I was really fortunate to be at uh, Princeton um, Davis Center for Historical Studies, which is an incredible experience. And um, it's allowed me the ability to kind of do what I really want to do for the time being, which is really delve into the text and explore things closely. And I do hope at some point soon to go back to teaching. But for now, 
some of these projects just kind of take on a life of their own, and I sort of feel um, sort of devoted to the idea of pursuing them uh, full time. So that's, I guess, about it for the bio. Well, it's it's interesting, and I'm sure there are certain forms of research which are only really possible uh, when you can devote yourself to them to them full time. So I'm sure it's it's been uh, fruitful in that respect. Um, so turning to the turning to the book, um, I thought it'd be good to begin with with a discussion about this term spectacular punishment. I take it that's a, a term of art, isn't it? Um, I don't know if it's a term of art. I guess it just sort of means the idea of punishment that is meant to be a spectacle, punishment that one actually sees, uh, which is very different, I guess, from the kind of punishment that we have in contemporary Western society, which is largely invisible. Um, punishment became invisible at a particular moment in time, but it actually became visible at a particular moment in time, too, which is around the 11th and 12th century. It was sort of the beginning of the reign of spectacular punishment, and then it died out in different places in different times. Um, uh, 19th century in most of Western Europe and in France, the last public execution uh, was 1939. And in fact, you include at the very end of uh, end of the book a picture, which I was very surprised to see a very sharp and and uh, sort of vivid picture uh, of that execution. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of exactly where they stopped doing them because with the advent of uh, film and pictures, there's this whole tension between. Uh, the need to show punishment because there's this idea that it's meant to be a deterrent and this idea that it's inappropriate somehow for people to watch it, that it appeals to people's basest instincts and sort of encourages kind of gawking. Um, so Western society sort of from roughly the 18th to the 20th century is, is torn between this idea of this model of exemplary deterrence and punishing in order to deter crime and set an example, and at the same time this idea that it's inappropriate to be staging these things. And it goes on for a good, in France, a good 200 years uh, of, of sort of trying to make it public, but invisible at the same time. Now, you mentioned uh, the concept of deterrence. Running through the book is this current of, or this discussion about the, the rhetoric of exemplary deterrence and how this colors our understanding uh, of the past. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the really strange thing about punishment, and the thing that, that confused me at the beginning is so much of the rhetoric in contemporary society about punishment, particularly about capital punishment, is the idea of deterrence, um, that regardless of whether uh, capital punishment has actually been shown to deter, and I think there have been a lot of studies done that, that say that it doesn't really deter, although some people still claim that it does, sure. um, that we somehow feel the need to keep punishing, whether it's um, prison or capital punishment, uh, regardless of the actual effect of deterrence. And what really began to interest me was, why do we cling to this idea that punishment really is about deterrence when so many of the penal practices that we employ either today or, or in history um, really don't seem to be about deterrence? And I sort of gradually over a period of years formulated the idea that sort of why we think we punish and the actual history of punishment and its technique, techniques and its development over time are really developed from two entirely different sources. So that the theory of punishment comes from one place and penal practices and how people perceive them come from an entirely different historical trajectory and that 
a lot of the time these two things function at completely cross purposes that punishment isn't always about deterrence despite the fact that we have this need to think that it is and that many of the penal practices are much more about kind of ritual uh, than about the need to deter future crime and in fact I think uh, in the third part of your book you discuss what you call a sort of cultural crisis at the moment when um, I think the term you use is a sentimental revolution is occurring um, on the one hand, uh, but at the same time, um, the the, pen, the punishment or the, the, the spectacular element of, of, of capital punishment is becoming ever more uh, sort of vivid. Um, right, right. And that's, um, there's this, I guess it really is a cultural crisis that happens in France uh, right about the time of the execution of Damien in 1757, but it happens throughout Western Europe, uh, give or take 10 or 20 years on either side of that, that um, throughout the 17th and 18th century, people are watching executions almost as a kind of, um, as a spectacle, as an art form, as, a, as something they enjoy watching. Um, and people of all classes flock executions, and there's this sort of, um, desperation to get a good seat and bid up prices in windows overlooking executions and, and uh, particularly the aristocracy is, is big on doing this uh, through the 17th and the first part of the 18th century and then it gradually spreads to the other classes so that it's a huge kind of almost theatrical event and at the same time there is this kind of slow burning sentimental revolution uh, that's happening also around the sort of um, mostly through the 17th and 18th century that is beginning to make the argument that what defines human beings is their ability to empathize with other human beings or to pity or to suffer along with them. And so there's this idea that it is unnatural somehow or inhuman to watch other people suffer um, as, as a form of entertainment. And these two, the, the viewing habits of voyeurism and this sort of sentimental revolution, which creates people uh, who are sort of squeamish about watching other people suffer, these two things sort of run headlong into one another around the execution of Damien, which was this awful, awful, horrible execution. Most people know it from uh, the beginning of Foucault's Discipline and Punish. Uh, they just did really, really nasty things during, yeah, over a period of like eight hours. Yeah, per, perhaps uh, for those who haven't read Foucault, could you could you just run through the, the facts uh, real sure. quick of, of you know, um, what happened and why it happened? Yeah, he's, he's called a regicide, despite the fact that he really only succeeded in, in hurting the king only peripherally. I mean, he just sort of basically uh, a slight flesh wound. He never actually really hurt him. But according to French law, um, the intent of regicide is basically regicide. And so they need to punish him as a regicide. And basically, it's a, what they did, and this is taking place in 1757, so only you know, three decades before the revolution, uh, they reenacted pretty much the, the execution of Ravaillac, who was the regicide of um, Henry IV, um, the end of the 16th century. And what they do is because the crime is basically attacking the French state and ripping it apart because the body stands in for the nation as a whole, the body of the king. The idea is that you rip apart in horrible ways as a form of reenacting the crime, uh, the person who committed it. And so they 
made all these wounds on his body and poured molten lead into them and uh, and ripped his body apart with horses, uh, which took hours because uh, nobody really knew how to do it. They hadn't done a quartering in, in more than a century. And the whole thing was just a mess, and it was gruesome, and it was horrible in some ways. But the weird thing is that nobody anticipated the horror of it. And it was the greatest show of the 18th century, as far as anybody was concerned, going into it. And all the newspapers in Europe were talking about how how amazing a spectacle it was going to be and how anybody who was anybody should be there and, and buy a window if they could or secure a place on the Place de Grève, which is today's um, Hôtel de Ville in Paris. And all these entrepreneurs talk off rooftops and, and erected viewing platforms. And there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who showed up to it. Uh, I mean, there's no way to get an accurate count, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was, um, you know, several hundred thousand, who knows, maybe a million uh, people just crowded into the center of Paris. And if they couldn't get close to it, they uh, were lined up all along the way of uh, Damien's march to the center of the city so that they could catch a glimpse of him. And yet, somehow, they hadn't quite been prepared for the fact of what was going to happen. And there aren't too many reports of people at the moment feeling as if it was inappropriate. And a lot of reports of people all excited with their binoculars and their picnic lunches and, and cocktails and things like that getting ready for the execution. But almost immediately in retrospect, people began to feel that things had gone too far, that there was something off or something strange about the whole event. And it's the beginning of a sort of, uh, I think you're saying in the book, a kind of pendulum of spectacularity swinging the other way. Um, this new way of watching executions, this voyeurism, and I say new, um, and I guess I'll talk about that in a second, but this idea in the 16th century, of a new voyeuristic way of watching really comes to an end pretty quickly in France and in other Western European countries in the middle of the 18th century when it's, it suddenly seems wrong. It suddenly seems inappropriate. And one of the first things they do is attack the idea of women watching, that they really obsess about the idea that it was inappropriate for the women to watch. And women had been watching executions in, you know, as a form of entertainment by this point in time for, for more than 200 years. But suddenly, because of the new ideas of sensibilité and, and sentimentality, that the idea that a woman could sit there watching a man be flayed alive and, and hacked to pieces and quartered for hours on end, uh, all the while snacking and having cocktails, just really violated suddenly people's sense of what was right and what was normal and what was human and inhuman. And there was this attack on the women um, who had come to watch, which is just basically a precursor to it suddenly being unfashionable and suddenly being um, not for enlightened, well-educated people of society to go to executions. And what you very quickly see after Damien's execution is a kind of vulgarization of the penal spectacle where uh, it becomes more or less the lower classes after that point who haven't caught on to the idea that it's inappropriate or unfashionable. And that creates a crisis in its own sense, because the whole idea of these public executions is supposed to be frightening the lower classes, at least that's the theory, and yet they show up all excited and wanting to see them, and it creates a real contradiction um, between what was supposed to be happening and what really was happening. 
Now, in, in sort of talking about the effect on, on the intended audience, um, you describe that there's a shift in the 16th century, right around 1520, uh, between a sort of ritualistic communal self-healing um, into something else, actually, uh, after, yeah. after that point in time. Yeah, that's. I, I guess that's really the other big moment in these kind of cultural shifts in how people perceive um, executions. Before the early 16th century, I make the argument in the book that, that what was really going on, despite all the rhetoric of deterrence, which has its own history that we can talk about, um, is that it is primarily, um, particularly in cases of capital punishment, not all punishment, primarily a, a sort of spectacle of religious penance. Um, and it has a lot of overlap with um, public penance in the Middle Ages. So that there is a lot of uh, praying and singing and lay penitents accompanying the condemned to the scaffold. And there's um, the crowd takes turns uh, singing and um, praying with the condemned uh, as they slowly fade away. And it is modeled on and has a lot of relationship to uh, the Passion of Christ. It's, it's a real-life passion play. And people tended to experience these things as beautiful um, and moving and as an important ritual of sort of overcoming the crime. Um, not all cases were like this. Um, uh, certain criminals were seen to be beyond redemption, and people had a sort of antagonistic attitude toward them. But the ideal capital punishment before the early 16th century was this kind of communal passion play where people could sort of heal and overcome the fact of the crime. And then something really strange happens, and that's the sort of advent of uh, Lutherans in, uh, in France and the sort of punishment of Lutherans in the, in the 1520s. And what Lutherans do is that they refuse to play the role of the penitent. They refuse to go to the scaffold and pray and sing. And instead, they smile and they laugh uh, because they have this sense of being outside this ritual. And they go to the scaffold joyfully because they're about to achieve salvation rather than crying and weeping and begging forgiveness of God. And it kind of short-circuits the whole ritual, and people start showing up at executions just to watch, just to see what happens, just to see whether the Lutheran's going to repent and reconvert to Catholicism or stay true to what was seen as a heresy. And this new kind of wirism slowly seeps into um, the specter of executions, and people from all over flock to watch the Lutherans be put to death rather than to pray with them in a much more what we would call an empathetic way. Um, and what ends up happening is that this way of watching starts to spread to not only the execution of heretics, but to common criminals. And what I think happens is that on the 15, by the 1550s and 1550s, um, you get a kind of new taste for the sort of spectacle of executions, for the, the, the joy of watching them as a kind of voyeuristic event. And the first indication that I could find of this was in the diaries of Thomas Platter, who was a Swiss medical student in Montpellier, who gives the first account of 
showing up in a sort of middle-class home and watching an execution uh, with um, other relatively well-to-do, uh, as well as aristocratic people from the from the neighborhood, through a window, uh, invited to somebody's house and um, eating and drinking as they watched the execution. And what I started to notice is that if you look at images of executions from the 1560s onward, uh, you can see all the people in windows. I mean, they're there everywhere in a way that I hadn't noticed before, that all these people are crowded into windows as a kind of social event to watch executions. So that's the sort of shift from ritual to a kind of voyeuristic spectacle that starts over the course of the 16th century and, as I said before, kind of comes to an end around the time of the execution of Damien, where that kind of wireism is, is no really, not really appropriate in terms of people's contemporary sense of, of sensibility. Do you see a link between uh, Platter's accounts of, of executions and the development of, of the medical profession or the evolution of the medical profession uh, during the same period? Is there sort of a, a sort of clinical uh, feature to his descriptions yeah. that, that borrows from the medical tradition? I think there is, and it's hard to know exactly what which way it goes, or whether two things happen at the same time, or whether one influences the other. But it's pretty much as ex exactly the same point in time that the um, dissection theaters spread uh, all over Europe. Um, I think they start mostly in Italy and then sort of spread outwards from there. Uh, dissections of uh, cadavers as well as vivisections of animals, uh, this kind of, uh, which, which not only include included doctors, but the same audience, the same local dignitaries, middle class, aristocrats, all gathered together to watch bodies be dissected. There's definitely an overlap between these two things. They're, they're both happening at roughly the same time. It's fascinating. And it's interesting uh, that you also note that the um, sort of the exit, the executee, I'm not sure exactly what to call them, other than the patient, which is the term that you introduced, that the, the person undergoing execution is, is referred to as the patient. Yeah, the, the patient is the sufferer, uh, the person who suffers. It comes from the same root as the passion, mm -hmm. uh, he who suffers. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So the question was the, um, the relationship between the, the person who watches and the sufferer? Uh, no, I was just ob observing the, the sort of link between the two, the common etymology. Uh, oh, yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. But so we've discussed the execution of Damien. There's another execution which, which plays a, a prominent and recurring role, and that's in, in your work, and that's the Sao of Falaise. And I was wondering uh, yeah. if, if you could inter introduce this story because it is a, a surprising one um, uh, sure. to those who haven't seen heard of it before. Yeah. So the the book starts off with um, with a murder um, that takes place um, in the uh, 14th century in Falaise in northern France. And it's, um, it's a case in which um, a pig uh, goes into a home and um, eats a child and kills him. And the pig is um, uh, prosecuted and punished um, as if it had been a human being. And the Sao of Falaise um, became this uh, incredibly famous case uh, among sort of amateur and professional historians in the 19th century in France, but throughout all of Europe. Uh, people kept talking about it endlessly, um, and all sorts of new details were discovered, and 
eventually the 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 story went that the sow was not only sort of prosecuted and punished as if it had been human, but they actually severed the sow's uh, snout and put a human mask on the on the on the pig, and that they brought together the father of the boy as well as the owner of the pig as well as pigs from neighboring towns all to watch the execution. And what I wanted to do with this story is um, let's talk about the story itself uh, than what historians have done with it, because um, I mean 19th century historians primarily, but but uh, people continued to be obsessed with it through the 20th century. Because really, the execution of a pig isn't unusual. Um, when anybody was killed by an animal, whether it was a horse or a pig or a dog or a um, or any animal whatsoever, whether by accident or intentionally, uh, the animal was sort of prosecuted as a way of determining guilt. And if guilt was ascertained, then the animal was punished, um, usually in the same way that a person would have been punished. And what the problem is that it, it, it flies in the face of what our modern conception of punishment is, because punishment is supposed to be about setting an example, and it's supposed to punish evil intentions. And the problem is that animals aren't usually seen to have intent or responsibility for their actions. And so as modern people, we have this need to explain away these rituals through, uh, to make them sort of conform to the idea of deterrence. So what eventually happened is that all these historians kind of invented details in the story that weren't there as a way of making sense of, of the execution of, of that particular pig. And so they invented the fact that uh, a human mask was affixed to it. They invented the fact that um, the father and the owner of the pig had to show up and watch. They invented the fact that these are most recently in the last 10 or 20 years, that all the pigs from neighboring towns were brought in to watch uh, as a way of saying, you know, let this be a lesson to you not to kill children or whatever, because it just violates our whole notion of what punishment is, that they would go through this ritual with a pig. We have to read deterrence into it as a way of making sense. And the real story of what's going on is, um, is that it doesn't have much to do with deterrence. It has to do with the ritual itself. And whenever any crime is committed, there has to be a kind of ceremony or ritual as a way of overcoming the crime. So if the person perpetrating the crime happens not to be a person but an animal, then the ritual has to take place on the animal. It has nothing to do with, with teaching a lesson. It has to do with sort of processing what's happened. And it's the same logic that governs the fact that if you can't find the actual criminal, right. then you have, you have to perform it by effigy, because it's not about teaching a lesson, it's about process, it's about the ritual itself. It's like a funeral, almost. Uh, people have funerals in today's world when you can't find the body because people need closure, and it's pretty much comparable uh, in the Middle Ages. If you can't find the body, or if the body happens to be an animal, you still need the ceremony. And a surprising number of executions, um, some people put it uh, at around 50, sometimes more than 50% of executions are performed in effigy, either on a kind of straw dummy or acted out on a painting of the condemned 
or act it out within the painting so that you paint the person being executed if you can't actually find them. And these executions by effigy happened up to the French Revolution and even in a couple of cases after 1789 uh, because these were a really important part of early modern justice. So the story of the South Falaise really is about kind of juxtaposing our modern preconceptions with what punishment must be about with what it really seemed to be about for the people who were actually living through it. And you draw a nice parallel, actually, in your conclusion uh, between the sort of shift in rationale for the execution of humans uh, through the modern period in France, uh, along with sort of um, a shift in the practice of executing animals who have um, committed homicide or who have killed a human being, um, and, and cite to a modern case uh, in Georgia. Yeah, um, and, I, and I guess I ended up doing that because I was, I was trying to come up with a conclusion uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, and I, you know, as is often the case when we don't know how to end the book or we don't know what to do, you sort of end up distracting yourself with other things, and so I was sitting there reading the paper and just flipping the pages of the New York Times and read about um, two professors who, uh, or one professor and his wife who had been... Um, attacked by a, a pack of wild dogs in Georgia, near the University of Georgia in Athens. And um, there had been an actual uh, legal procedure where the judge had sort of ordered local authorities to gather up uh, the local dogs um, in the area and euthanize them. And I really, the funny thing is I hadn't thought much about it. I just kind of flipped the page, went back to my computer and said, what am I going to write about? And then it suddenly occurred to me, wow, I, I just read an animal execution in, in, in the 21st century. And it seemed perfectly natural to me. It didn't seem strange. It seemed perfectly natural. Of course you would do that. If, if somebody had been killed by dogs, you had to prevent it happening again. And you had to euthanize the dogs. You had to get rid of them. And what I suddenly realized is that in a, in a very strange way, that if you look at animals, whether it's in the, the Middle Ages, the early modern period, or the modern period, it kind of strips off the veneer, the rhetoric of deterrence, and you can really see kind of pure penal practice happening. So in the Middle Ages, you see the ritual devoid of deterrence. They just go through it, not because they're teaching a lesson, because they need to. And what it showed me was that in the modern period, if you strip away all the rhetoric of deterrence about capital punishment, what it really is in its pure practice is simply getting rid of people, simply getting rid of animals, simply getting rid of dangerous things as a way of protecting the community. And the procedure that they use, the euthanasia of the animals, is exactly the same one that they use today on criminals. It's euthanasia, but we call it lethal injection. And so it really enables you to sort of look beyond rhetoric and to strip away veneer and to take away, to sort of unpack all of the sort of deterrent stuff and put it to the wayside and see penal practice in its pure form. And, and I think that's what, what looking at animal execution really does. Now, the logic of, of just getting rid of people, of, of excising um, in, as sort of an emergency procedure, members of the community who, who just couldn't be part of the community anymore. This this logic emerged, um, as you discussed, uh, out of the the writings and and, and uh, discussions among French intellectuals uh, in the modern period. And uh, Beccaria played 
played a central role in that discussion. Yeah, and that's the surprising thing for me. And I guess, um, you know, we, we tend to think of the sort of the, the whole revolution in human rights in the 18th century as just, um, uh, uh, I don't know, but modern historians sometimes sort of characterize it as almost as if the light went on and it's the end of a kind of dark ages of sensibility and suddenly people are able to empathize across class lines and recognize other people as human beings and therefore suddenly they they don't like the idea of just killing people for petty crimes they see themselves in the other person and therefore you know it's a birth of a whole new humanism and human rights and and a sort of softer gentler kind of punishment and that's usually the way the sort of 18th century um, uh, human rights reforms related to punishment are, are characterized and what I tended to find looking closely at the texts themselves was something really, really different. Um, and that's that what people objected to, um, well, I, I guess the fair thing to say would be, yes, they wanted, there, there was a sort of element of humanism in the sense that they wanted to drastically reduce the number of capital punishments. They wanted to make it such that small, petty crimes uh, were no longer punishable by capital punishment. And so the number of cases in which one could legitimately be put to death were reduced. But this idea wasn't the idea of sort of enlightenment reformers. It was pretty much universal. There were very few people arguing in the middle of the 18th century that um, they need to, to, to keep up the number of punishments and keep up the, the, the number of crimes that, that were punished by capital punishment. Almost everybody thought it was time to sort of uh, scale back the frequency of capital punishments. What the humanist reformers tended to do, and Bakara was, was, um, was the most famous one, but there were basically two strains of humanism that he combines. One is the idea, and, and you can, Foucault is a sort of master at reading this in Montesquieu and others, the idea that punishment wasn't being effective, that capital punishment wasn't deterring anybody, and therefore you needed to come up with a more efficient, more economic means of punishment that would do the work of deterring people in a much more effective way. And um, there's a whole strain of kind of utilitarian thought and utopian thought that comes up with the idea that forced labor is a much better idea than capital punishment, because not only do you not lose a human life, but they actually work for the benefit of the state as um, penal slaves. And they produce labor and they help society. And the spectacle of them teaches a lesson to other people about about crime, an ongoing lesson. And, and Beccaria said, I don't care if this kind of suffering is worse than capital punishment. The whole point is that they should suffer. Um, and if you added together the moments in their life from the time that they commit the crime until they die, it's much more horrible than capital punishment, and that's the point. It's an ongoing spectacle that costs nothing to society and actually produces a benefit to society. So there's that kind of um, utilitarian, almost economic strain of humanist thought. And then there's this um, sort of sentimental approach about a sort of uh, love of human life and, and a refusal to sort of take it for no reason whatsoever. And this is where things get really kind of fuzzy because uh, the conventional 
understanding of, of human rights theorists of the 18th century is that they had a newfound respect for human life and that they uh, favored the abolition of punishment, uh, of capital punishment. But what is closer to the truth is that they favored the abolition of the spectacle of punishment, that they just didn't want to see it anymore. And in those cases when it was deemed a good idea or for the protection of society a good idea to kill somebody, they wanted to do it as quietly and invisibly as possible to simply get rid of people, to excise them from the community so that they would just disappear. And what happens underneath the rhetoric of humanism is basically a shift from the spectacle of punishment to punishment almost as a form of banishment. Um, and you can almost kind of trace it back to the idea of banishment. If somebody becomes too problematic, you get rid of them, you exterminate them, and the original meaning of extermination is to put somebody beyond the border, beyond the boundary. It's a sort of banishment to the other world. And even though Beccaria, for whatever reason, has gone down as an abolitionist, uh, if you read his text really closely, the, the first translation uh, that was done by the Abbe Morellet um, takes out a sentence or two to make him seem more like an abolitionist, but if you read the original, he says, I'm opposed to capital punishment except in those cases when it's necessary, and when it's necessary, it should be done uh, as quietly as possible. You just remove an enemy of society. And so what I wanted to do in my book, to make a long story short, was just to sort of draw the connection between humanism and natural rights theorists, people like Locke and Rousseau, uh, Berlamaki, all these other people who say that enemies of the state need to be slaughtered like beasts because they are a threat to society and they need to be done away with uh, almost like as a, as a cancer to the social body. And it really is a shift from a kind of spectacle, ritual, ceremony of healing to just simply getting rid of people. And I think that's the origin of modern conceptions of capital punishment. I think arguably the one that we are, we're still in today. And that uh, that process of, of development in thought also drove a search for new technologies that could industrialize the process. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the, the guillotine um, is is invented precisely as a way of getting rid of people as invisibly as possible. I, the strange thing about the guillotine is it's gone down in popular memory as this thing that was this huge spectacle uh, that made death public, but the truth is, within the context of the time, it was all about the invisibility of it, because you go from a spectacle of execution that lasted hours and hours, sometimes days, for a breaking on the wheel, to a death that could happen in a split second that was practically invisible. And one of the, the sort of fascinating footnotes to that story is the, the decline in stature of the executioners. Yeah, um, and they really do. They're the sort of heyday of the executioner. It, it tracks almost perfectly the, the rise and fall of spectacular justice. So the advent of spectacular executions when Roman law, there's a sort of renaissance in Roman law in the uh, 12th and 13th centuries in Europe spreading outward from Italy, and the rise of, of Roman-style public executions that spread everywhere. And as these executions are carrying it, carried out in Western Europe, there rises up a kind of hereditary race of people, um, these 
executioners who uh, are completely set apart from society. They are pariahs. They are untouchables. They often have jobs of, of working in sewers or dealing with carcasses. But they also tend to be among the wealthiest people in the region because they have this privilege known as avage, which gives them the right to seize a certain percentage of goods in the marketplace. So they were really actually wealthy people who could not be touched. And they had their own families, and they intermarried among themselves. And they were um, prominent untouchables, almost like a sort of mirror image of the sort of sovereign, but a kind of sovereign of the underworld. And they would oversee uh, lepers and prostitutes in, in any particular region, as well as foreigners. And what happens... Um, Toward the end of the 18th century is many of their privileges are taken away, and with the advent of the guillotine in 1792, their numbers are drastically reduced, and eventually they're, you know, you, you go from thousands of executioners in France to a few hundred to uh, a few dozen to simply one uh, who brings guillotines around France with a, uh, by railroad, and you can almost chart the rise and fall of the spectacle of a guillotine through the executioner and the follow the profession. Now, another feature that the executioner that I found interesting was uh, that executioners sort of lived at the margins and that one of their social roles was to sort of police the boundaries between uh, what was sort of acceptable and unacceptable. Right. Um, the They were in charge of, in certain areas, of, of uh, kind of patrolling, like you said, the, the illicit acts. Uh, so gambling houses, uh, uh, brothels, um, the comings and going of strangers. Um, uh, they sort of corralled lepers. Apparently, l lepers who were known to the community were okay, but nobody wanted foreign lepers coming in, and the executioner was sort of charged with that. Um, stray animals were, were in their province. Um, so they really did. They policed the boundaries of, of what was uh, what was good and clean and normal and everything that was strange and uh, foreign. Uh, they were like the policemen patrolling that border. And when somebody committed a crime, they basically were handed over to the executioner, handed over to his realm. And sometimes when, um, I mean, not every punishment obviously ended in execution. Although the French word execution actually meant any execution of justice, regardless, regardless of whether it ends in death. So you would have called, uh, you know, even exhibiting somebody on a pillory an execution because it was an execution of justice, even if they don't die. So when somebody is handed over the executioner, it's either for a temporary period where they're displayed on the pillory or marked or branded or any number of things that could be done to them and then released back into society, or it's more a kind of permanent uh, where they would be sort of banished uh, to a foreign land that the executioner would actually physically push them out of the region or banish to the other world um, uh, through the spectacle of, of the actual death penalty that could go on for hours and hours. But, but he, the executioner, was like the kind of master of ceremonies uh, who would perform the execution before the audience and sort of lead people on their spiritual journey to the other world um, and would be helped in the final moments after the uh, turn of the 16th century by the priest who would stand next to the executioner and sort of help to counsel the patient as they made their transition.
transition toward toward death. And also, it seemed as if it was not just the execution itself, or even the prospect of being displayed before the public, but the touch of the executioner was part of the punishment as well. It was an intrinsic part of the the punishment, right. the taint of, right. of being touched by this by this untouchable. Um, That's right, and 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 it really, I mean, you can read it in the archival documents. You can actually see like the moment of touching, where these these literally untouchable beings lay their hand on a criminal and it's always the moment when they realize that they've that they've become his patient and people sometimes cry out or scream or beg for mercy even if they're not going to be killed just the horror of being touched by this person um is is in and itself a, a sort of transformative moment for them and that uh, that same fear sort of carried over uh, into everyday life as well. Merchants were, f- for instance, afraid of of the same touch. Right, right. right. The uh, one of the biggest arguments that took place all over France is this idea that w- when the executioners would go around in the marketplace from one merchant to the other, um, they would mark them with chalk to signify that they'd paid, and people really resented being marked, even though it was sort of mediated by their uh, by the piece of chalk. Nobody liked to be even touched by a piece of chalk that was touching the executioner. And when they went to seize their goods, they would take it with a, a tin spoon, because if an executioner actually touched the produce, it was all spoiled. So they would have to select out what was their due with a tin spoon so as not to contaminate the goods. And um, a really interesting document, I think it was from Dijon, was um, sort of instructions to the execution on what to do if people refused to give them their just due. And the first instruction was to sort of reason with them, and if they still refused, then to pretend to reach for the food. And in most cases, people would sort of, because of the terror of all of their goods being contaminated, would give them what they wanted. And only in the last instant could they actually touch it and contaminate it. Um, because their their touch really was profane and contaminated and would spread to people. And and one of the sort of urban legends and horror stories of uh, the early modern period is the story about, um, and, and you see it all over the place, um, uh, somebody who goes to a town uh, and meets a, a really nice guy in a, in a pub and hangs out with them and has a great time and then is later discovers it was the executioner because the idea of dining with the executioner is everybody's nightmare uh, because it just contaminates the core of your being eating something eating in their company was just horrible and the other urban legend is uh, somebody who falls in love with a beautiful woman only discovered that it's the daughter of an executioner and and you cannot marry the daughter of an executioner without joining the whole family of pariahs um, you're just these are a different race of people who are completely separate from normal humanity. And contrasted with with the modern period at the very end of of the period that you that you discuss, uh, executioners become bureaucrats. Yeah, or, or at least that's the idea. I think that's what the, the French revolutionaries were hoping to do. And there are these very curious debates um, in the French National Assembly in 1789 where they debate the civil status of actors, executioners, and Jews. Um, and this is actually how I got interested in the topic in the first place, because my first book was on um, actors and theater. 
and all of these people, um, actors, executioners, and Jews, had been denied a civil status in the old regime and were, to a greater or lesser extent, um, pariahs um, and with different degrees of untouchability. And the National Assembly, because it is extending rights not only to uh, all estates, but to all minorities within the state in the estates has this huge debate about whether they should allow actors into the social body and whether they should allow executioners into the social body as well as Jews. And they end up deciding that they will. Um, they let actors and executioners in first. It takes them another two years to let Jews in. Um, but the idea is that they want to let them in in a way that is, is different. They want to recast executioners as government functionaries, because they want to get away from the whole spectacular nature of punishment, and they want it just to be people disappearing. And executioners, which uh, in the early modern period in the Middle Ages had to wear special outfits of different cloaks and different colors, were just so garishly visible that they wanted to turn them into bureaucrats as a way of sort of lessening the spectacle and make it a more sort of almost industrial process. You simply get rid of somebody without making a big show of it. So they want to turn them into agents of the law. And it's the beginning of the kind of disappearance of the executioner in images and rhetoric um, where they really become sort of almost invisible, like they are today. I mean, we never never hear much about the actual people committing executions. No, not at all. Um, now, I think perhaps shifting gears, uh, an interesting subject on which to conclude would be uh, on the topic of the heterogeny of the French uh, legal tradition. And at the end, you sort of, you tie everything together by suggesting or, or sort of reiterating the point that your your history is really not just a history of France, but history of, of all of Western um, legal culture, of all of Western um, sort of the culture of punishment in, in Western society. Um, yeah. And this comes from this comes from a mixed uh, a mixed heritage a heritage of overlapping legal systems. Yeah, um, I think you know there there are definitely differences um, among different nations and different cultures, but I think there's more commonality than we tend to realize, and and many of the same strains of theory and practice that exist in France. Uh, are sort of common to the Western legal and penal tradition more generally. And I guess I make the argument that, that there are several different strands of theory and practice. Um, Roman law is probably the single most important aspect of the theory of punishment um, from the 12th century onwards. There's, there's a huge renaissance, as I said before, and Roman legal thinking, and it spreads outward from Italy all through Western Europe, uh, through Britain and the islands, and uh, extending into um, European colonies, so that our understanding of the purpose and the theory of punishment um, tends to be fairly universal across Western culture, and that we've sort of inherited from this 12th century, 12th and 13th century renaissance of Roman legal theories and practices. Then you get the sort of influence of Catholicism, um, penitential practices, the idea of sort of admitting guilt, saying you're sorry, atoning for your sins, um, that uh, for obvious reasons um, is a sort of European-wide phenomenon um, as well as a sort of 
phenomenon in the, Euro- in the European colonies. And then there's something else uh, that we haven't really talked about, which is what historians used to call uh, Germanic, uh, but uh, medieval historians uh, don't use the word anymore. It's a sort of, um, nobody really knows whether it's a Germanic thing or a actually provincial Roman thing, but the idea of compensation, that if you commit a crime, you you pay for it. And in um, the Salic law, it is you pay for it with, through money. Um, you kill somebody, regardless of whether you mean to or not, you pay for it. You pay the worth of the person you killed. You steal a pig, you pay, you return the pig, and then you pay damages. Um, it's it's pretty much the same logic as modern insurance companies that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you mean to or not. If you commit a crime, you have to pay. And I think there's the legacy there, not only in European culture, but in American culture and elsewhere, this idea of paying when things go wrong that has its legacy in both criminal and civil uh, damages um, and the idea of paying for your crime. So all of these things together theories, practices, as well as all the perceptions, the, the ways of watching voyeuristically, the sentimentality that says we can't watch, even though I trace these in France, because that's what historians tend to do, they trace things in one culture from one point forward, I think that the story that I tell that happens in France really is a, a much wider, bigger story of European and Western culture more generally. Well, it's very fascinating, and I think there's there's certainly a move, I think, to try to understand uh, the the connect, connectedness of, of legal systems, both within Europe and, and across the Atlantic. Um, right. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, thanks very much for speaking with us. Could you tell us a bit about uh, your current project before we before we close? Sure. Um, so uh, coming out of this project um, and the whole culture of new sensibilities and uh, sort of squeamishness about seeing punishment and wanting to mask it and uh, not only the guillotine but actually moving the guillotine out of town and and so that it's less visible and eventually in most places uh, in the 19th century in France in 1939 moving it behind closed doors so that you don't see punishment anymore. My new project is about a sort of related kind of which is the, the idea of humane slaughter uh, and the killing of animals. And um, I guess you can see how one thing goes, um, uh, how you get from executions to humane slaughter. As my mother keeps telling me, I keep dwelling on these morbid subjects, <laughs> but I, I really don't mean to. But um, it's more sort of trying to unravel internal contradictions. And I'm really... what uh, I. I guess a shorthand for for the new project is what I want to figure out is this idea, uh, the sort of origins of this modern idea of why people think it's uh, sort of how they can rationalize that it's morally permissible to kill animals as long as they don't suffer and and where that idea comes from, uh, free-range chicken and, and all that stuff. So it's it's... A, a good way of defining it is the sort of history of free-range chicken, but it's really more tracing this shift in European culture from a culture that kills animals in the street right in front of people 
to a culture that at exactly the same time that capital punishment is moved from city centers, animal slaughter is as well, because nobody wants to look at it anymore. It's the birth of a new kind of squeamishness at the sight of blood. And people get very upset about any kind of death or suffering that they can actually witness. And animal, sla- animal slaughter is moved behind closed doors at the same time as, as human slaughter is. And um, just tracing the sen- sensibilities forward from the 18th uh, to the 19th and actually up to the 20th century, um, charting uh, our conception of animals, our conception of sensibility and suffering and pain um, from the early modern to the modern period. Well, we'll all look forward to to seeing that when it's finished. Um, so thank you very much for your time. This has been... Oh. Sorry. No, thank you. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun, and I really, really appreciate your, your not only reading the book, but asking really, really interesting questions. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been Andrew Jaya for New Books in Human Rights, part of the New Books Network. I've been speaking with historian Paul Friedland about his book, Seeing Justice Done, The Age of Spectacular Capital Punishment in France. It will be available via Oxford University Press starting in July 2012. Thanks for listening.